Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's Tuesday, March 14th, and welcome to another edition of The Ben Jarofsky Show. On today's show, Ben welcomes special guest Stephen Andy Schneider. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what Ben Jarofsky's doing, what's going on in Chicago. It's all there, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to find more Ben Jarofsky stuff, say like bonus episodes or like previous shows that you haven't heard before, head on over to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chicagoland USA Tuesday. And here's why. Because I live in Chicago, not Chicagoland. I live in Chicago. And in Chicago, it's like its own separate entity. Nothing exists outside of Chicago. And right now, all it is is mayoral election. <laughs> By the way, folks, I just got to tell you, all you geeks and junkies and nerds who listen to this show, and that's what you are, because you're listening to one, the ultimate Chicago political geek and nerd. Uh, there is a world outside of Chicago. I, I know you know it. And some of my uh, friends are beginning to go, hey, Ben. When are you going to start talking about the world outside of Chicago again? You've been obsessively talking about Chicago politics for like a month. And I just want to tell you guys, this was my life uh, for, I don't know, the last 40 years, obsessively following Chicago politics while following the rest of the world. I could do both. So we just have having a, a massive bank collapse. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, a run at a bank which is scaring the hell out of everybody, the Silicon uh, Valley Bank. All the hedge funds, wheelers and dealers on top of the world, all the venture capitalists on top of the world, all those little techie geniuses on top of the world, so contemptuous of everybody else. They got it made. They're rich. We're not. They're winners. We're losers. Uh-oh. There's a run on their bank. It, it turns out that their whole industry is as fragile as an eggshell. And it's about to break. And now they're like, oh, oh, can you bail us out? And Joe Biden runs right in. Yes, I guarantee all deposits. And they're all like, I read a story in the paper about how a bunch of wheeler dealer tech types on a plane. I don't know where they were going. Or I think it was going from Texas to Cali. Not quite sure. I can't remember the details. Uh, I always think of Elon Musk, by the way, when I think of this stuff. The ultimate, the ultimate contemptuous techie who made a freaking fortune uh, and just is like richer than rich, contemptuous of absolutely everyone and despises liberals for some reason, even though they're the ones who made him rich by buying his freaking cars. It's the weird, most twisted relationship here. 
But anyway, I always think of, of him when I think of techies these days. So anyway, they got their big paw out looking for a handout, looking for a bailout, as you knew they would. But some broke guy in Chicago needs some help. It's like, good damn, they're taking from us and giving it to them. Heard that from my someone. I don't know who it was just recently. They're taking from us and giving it to them. We're about to elect. Yes, Chicago, you're about, I'm going to bring it back to Chicago. You're about to elect a law and order Republican who is a lifelong Democrat. <laughs> That's my favorite part. I am a lifelong Democrat, says Paul Vallis, except for the part of my life when I was a Republican. Well, then you're not a lifelong Democrat. Just saying. And I mean, I don't want to be like that English teacher that you had, who you know, back in seventh grade, who circled all the mistakes you made in your paper. But if you say you're a lifelong Democrat, that would mean you are always a Democrat. So you can't say you're a lifelong Democrat when you were a Republican phase. When you went through that Republican phase, I might add. Anyway, Chicago is so oblivious to what goes around the world. We're supposedly a Democratic city, but we're lining up to elect Paul Vallis even though he is a Republican. And now I love Paul Vallis's latest explanation, ladies and gentlemen. His latest explanation is that he just works well with other people. And that's what we need, someone who works well with other people. He's waging war against teachers. <laughs> what about that part of working well with? Well, I work well with all the teachers who do whatever I tell them to do, Ben. Oh, okay. that would leave out, I don't know, 85 to 90% of the teachers. I work well with everybody except for people I don't work well with. And I, just like being I'm a lifelong Democrat, except for the time when I wasn't a Democrat. That's the guy you're you're eager to elect, Chicago. You're lining up. I live on the north side. On the north side of Chicago, people just love Paul Bell's law and order. We're going to bring law and order to Chicago. Yeah, it's like he's Wyatt Earp or something. You know, he's, he's strapped on a six-shooter. That's it, Paul Vallis walking down the street with his guns jangling and his spurs jangling. <laughs> I'm going to clean up this city. And Northsiders are going, yes, yes, he understands me. Weird city. Anyway, all around Chicago, the world is going on completely indifferent to what we're doing. And yet I'm obsessed with Chicago. About to do a whole interview about Chicago politics. I'm not apologizing for it, ladies and gentlemen. This is my obsession. This is your obsession, too. Uh, in the news, breaking new op news, operating engineers, local 150, giving Vallis $1 million after giving Garcia same amount. I got to start off by saying I love operating engineers, local 150. Why? Because they came to my aid when I got fired by a radio station. So I am, will always have just a great feeling in my heart for them. That said, we don't see eye to eye in a lot of things politically, uh, which is a miracle that they came to my aid which just shows you like there's, I guess there's something about me and something about them that we connected at that moment in time. Uh, so I will always appreciate uh, them, but I, I uh, for that, I don't see eye to eye with them uh, on this. Uh, I understand why they're doing it though. I absolutely do. And I always tell people this, that unions are essentially looking out for their members. In the case of operating engineers, uh, they're hoping that Paul Vallis will take those TIF dollars and put them to use with development deals. Now, 
the, the, the part that I break for them is that I all believe that there will be construction projects in the city of Chicago, development deals in the city of Chicago, regardless of who's the mayor. Uh, and in particular, we definitely need infrastructure work in the city of Chicago. If anybody could tell you who's just driven down a Chicago street. So there will always be work building stuff in the city of Chicago. You don't have to just like build Lincoln Yards. Just you don't have to like have a construction project that essentially digs a big hole and then throws money in the hole and then covers the hole up, which is a waste of money. You can have projects that really benefit the city. But Chicago loves to waste money. So my guess is uh, that the operating engineers are pretty shrewd and they figured, you know, I think Paul Vallis is going to win this election. Mm -hmm. Most people on the north side of Chicago, most people on the northwest side of Chicago, most people on the southwest side of Chicago have come to the assumption that Paul Vallis will be our next mayor. And that is why we're seeing many of the endorsements coming down. The newspapers will all fall in line. Tribune's all. The Tribune is salivating the editorial board that is at the prospect of uh, Paul Vallis being our next mayor. So I think the powers that be in the city of Chicago, uh, the people who are in the know, the people who get invited to the parties that uh, I don't get invited to, and I don't think my distinguished guest uh, gets invited to, they've all concluded that Paul Vallis will be our next mayor, so they're just gathering around to make it happen. God, wouldn't that be something if we woke up on April 5th and uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. Brendan Johnson won. Oops. Everybody's like, huh? What? How could that possibly be? <laughs> they were chanting his name, Paul Ballas's name. I'm going to close with this. At the St. Patrick's Day Parade in the Southwest Side, they were chanting Paul Ballas's name. Come on, Southwest Siders. You know that's weird. You know that's weird. There's something going on there. What it is ain't exactly clear to quote an old rock and roll song that my distinguished guest doesn't know because he's too young. There is something going on there. Most people in Chicago boo a politician, particularly when they're drunk on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, they had too much to drink. <laughs> the Southwest Side, the parade, people get smashed, and they boo politicians. They're chanting his name. Huh. What are they so excited about? You got Paul Vallis running against Brandon Johnson. I'll tell you what, folks, I'm not going to say it because people say, Ben, you're race baiting. So all I'll say is, hey, folks, you want to know what they're so excited about? Take a look at a picture of Paul Vallis and put it next to a picture of Brandon Johnson. And look at the Vallis and look at Johnson and go, what's the first thing that's different about these two guys? And you might have a clue. As to why those folks on the Southwest side are chanting. Fact, here you go. If you're still confused by that, I'll give you one more suggestion. Take a picture of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Look at Brandon Johnson. See what they have in common. And then look at Paul Vallis and see the difference. And if you don't get it by then, there's no hope for you. All right. Enough of me ranting and railing. I am uh, now going to introduce my distinguished guest who has been sitting by patiently waiting for his moment to talk. And this is one of the champion orators in the city of Chicago, young Andrew Schneider from Logan Square. Welcome back, Andrew. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, it was a pleasure to listen to your rant as always. 
And I think you were getting it that Paul Vallis is Greek, right? That's what they're <laughs> chanting about. That's why they're excited. Uh, no, I don't think that's it. That wasn't it. All right, I'll keep thinking about it. Yeah, I, keep I, thinking. I can have photos side by side. Maybe yeah, just Brandon's beard is different. Yeah, look, don't forget to look at the Lori Life. That's it. There, she did. Yes, yes. You got to yeah. have a before and an after thing going. Okay, okay. a before <laughs> and an after. They're so excited. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I just uh, for uh, I just must come clean on something. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Just the elephant in the room. I am still wearing my pajamas. Uh, I just want that. <laughs> I got to admit it, man. But in my defense, uh, Andrew, I um, was visiting my family in uh, California. I took the red eye, landed, raced home, uh, got home around 730 and hopped into bed to get a few more hours of sleep. So I'm wide awake, but I never got around uh, to getting out of pajamas. So a moment of confession on the Ben Jarofsky show. No, that's good. I, look, my the T-shirt I'm wearing under my nicer shirt is definitely a Marvel T-shirt, and I might have sweated through it, but I, you know, I'm not swearing that I did that. I'm just speculating. All right. So um, Andrew Schneider is a preservationist and has been on the show talking preservation, Logan Square preservation. Uh, the man has an unbelievable knowledge of just like things in Chicago, monuments in Chicago. I remember uh, just street names in Chicago, the history of neighborhoods in Chicago. And uh, you stunned me. I never saw this coming. Obviously, you don't run every all your uh, political decisions by me. Well, I try. You just you're hard to reach. Yeah, I'm hard to reach. If you don't do it, it's a good idea. That's right. uh, as I always tell people, never take advice from me. Uh, you ran for alderman in the first war. And yes. just so folks know, I'm going to set it up. Uh, first ward is uh, the incumbent is Daniel Espada, who is a Democratic Socialist, a lefty. Uh, and he was challenged on the right uh, by Sam Royko. Uh, any, any baby boomer in Chicago recognizes the last name. Uh, most millennials and Zs have no idea what the last name means, which I love because baby boomers get over yourself, okay? Uh, and then for reasons I'll never understand, Proco Joe Moreno uh, decided to run for re-election, even though he made a disaster of his life. And really, he should have been all about self-reflection uh, and uh, dealing with his demons. Uh, whatever. He decided to run again. Uh, and then uh, Andrew Schneider jumped into the race. Uh, and Andrew, so... You were not victorious. Uh, La Spada was uh, one apparently without a runoff. He'll he eked yes. out a victory. Yes. Um, so I've, I've been I've been it's I've been struggling to get out of bed. It's why I'm wearing the Marvel T-shirt. <laughs> I've been it's 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 such a crushing thing to have have happen that uh, I don't mean I don't mean to make light of it. I'm very very proud of the race we ran. Um, but you know you have to you also have to laugh at yourself always. Uh, yes, you always have to laugh at yourself, which is why I'm laughing at myself for wearing pajamas uh, at uh, almost two in the afternoon. All right. So I, I, I wanted to have the conversation with you because I want folks to have an understanding of how daunting it is to run uh, for alderman in the city of Chicago, particularly if you're not the incumbent. Uh, fundraising, door knocking, all this, the basics, uh, ideology. Uh, how do you win over voters? And then the politics of crime. That seems to just to be the um, such a prevailing uh, theme in the city of Chicago these days, the politics of crime. So I just wanted to have a just general discussion so folks can get a sense of where we are politically 
in the city of Chicago. So uh, why don't you just start off by saying uh, where the first ward is, sort of what what it what its traits are and uh, why why you decided to run and what you hope to accomplish. Go ahead. Sure. Well, uh, the first the first ward stretches from uh, Logan Square on the north far northwest end of it all the way down to Grand and Ogden. And um, it did not include Bari Foods or Diamato's, which was something that I, I that was something I wore very heavily. Uh, the fact that the ward didn't quite get to the those two great businesses that I love. But um, it was a, it, it is a very diverse ward in terms of lived experience, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, socioeconomics, in terms of race. Um, it's as drawn, it's heavily white, but it's still a very disparate ward and requires an alder person. And by the way, that's, that's the other thing. The office title is officially alder person, which I spent a fair amount of time stumbling over, uh, as, as any longtime Chicagoan will, um, the office has always been alderman. It's very hard, uh, very hard to break that habit, but I, it was a, I don't know what I was thinking, frankly, Ben, when I got into this, um, I got mad over a few specific things um, and, and a pattern, uh, largely around community engagement. Uh, as an organizer in our community, I've always felt that it's first and foremost important for the older person, alderman, older person, who they're the closest elected official to us, right? In the most most places in the country, you know, you have many elected officials for every, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people. In the city of Chicago, you've got one elected official for every 50 odd, 56 odd thousand people. And so it, I always felt that it was really incumbent on the older person to make sure that they were going above and beyond to ensure community engagement, to get public meetings, to bring people into the process. And that's where I felt uh, that, and I still feel that the incumbent is, is lacking, right? profoundly lacking. Um, but I think so around a few, there were a few specific decisions that kind of pushed me into this. And I remember I, I, I often talk about it like it's getting on the eagle, if that makes sense. It's a little different. I, I used to compare pregnancy to getting on the eagle at Great America, right, where you get on the bottom and you think this is going to be great. And as the eagle climbs, you know, the car climbs, tick, 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 tick up the up the ramp. You think, oh, man, you get about halfway up and you're like, this is this is getting awfully high. I don't know if I want to be on this ride any longer, but I can't get off. And you keep going, uh, but, you're, but you're stuck. There's no way to get off of it. And I didn't think there, there should have been a variety of off ramps along the way where I could have uh, gotten off the ride. But at, at every turn, whether that was you start to when you start building steam in a race. And so that's there's a, a variety of ways that you start demonstrating your commitment. And people demonstrate their commitment to you. And that's around fundraising. That's around volunteer hours that are that are given and received. And so you start to feel more and more, if you're any kind of good and decent person, you start to feel more and more an obligation to the people that are funding you, an obligation to the people that are giving their time and their energy. And so you just take one step after another until it gets to be election day. Uh, and it was a really... It was a it was a stunning experience front to back. I, I don't think it's for everyone uh, running for office. I don't think it's for everyone. I I I used to tell got by the end of the campaign, I started telling people. I said, you know, I think I'm very different than the other candidates in this race. Very different. I would say how, and I said, well, everyone else is really really sure that they're supposed to be on the city council, and I'm the only person that every day that's gone by, I've been like, this is a really big job. This is a big job. Maybe there's somebody better. Right. And, and I know I won a few votes that way because I had people call me, ask me, I would tell them this little little story and they would go, well, that's really refreshing to hear. Most of the time, the, the politicians that call are, are dead set that they're the best. They're the absolute best. And I think that uh, if you have a little self-knowledge, you you realize that you 
don't have a crystal ball, you don't see the future, and you can't know what challenges await you in life. And if you're in public office, you may be suited for the moment or you may not be suited for the moment. Um, so you, I, I, yeah. Did you have that moments of doubt uh, before you filed and before you went through the experience? Were you confident of victory when you filed when, or when you made your decision uh, to run for office? No, no. In fact, uh, never confident of victory. I, I was, I was, in fact, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting point because when I would talk to people, I was, I was always very clear, the people that were funding us, the people that were volunteering their time, that we're running against an incumbent, that this is a challenging thing to do, and that if we have a good showing, right, we, we were running a progressive campaign, it's a progressive war a progressive incumbent. So I would tell people, look, if there's going to be a runoff, we're going to be probably in the runoff. That's, how the, that's just how the demographics and the voting in the ward is going to happen. If we don't make it if, if there is no runoff then we'll probably end up in third place which is precisely what happened we end up in third place behind royco uh with with daniel Espada the incumbent clearing 50 percent by just a handful of votes so i think paradoxically that people in politics and i've heard this over and over again when you're in politics in chicago whether you're on the sort of staff side or volunteer side or you're really committed to it you're used to hearing politicians or candidates running for office saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Just watch. I'm going to win. And I was consistently telling people, boy, I, I don't know. This is a very challenging situation. I think we have a path, but it may be a narrow one, maybe narrower or, or maybe wider based on the broader uh, trends in the ward and in the city. Uh, it's impossible, really impossible to predict, but it's a difficult road we're on. And so one of the things that I found most gratifying about the experience is that a fair number of people who initially sort of scoffed at me or said, you know, well, you're not, you know, you're not very serious. If you don't think you're going to win, how can you? A lot of people called me back and would say, boy, this candidate or that really fed me a line. They told me they had polling. They told me this. They told me that you were the only one that consistently told the truth. And I think that if you're if you're willing to do that, you can exit a race like this with your with your reputation enhanced. All which right, is now, what happened. OK, so when you begin a campaign, uh, when you're uh, making that decision, to run for uh, all in this case alderman do you do a poll uh and uh that tests your uh chances of winning or do you just wing it uh i think that if you do not do a poll that that is sort of the height of lunacy uh it's an <laughs> enormous truly uh, the height of lunacy we i mean i i'm happy to share we did a poll uh the poll showed the incumbent with uh, lower than expected name recognition um, and likely uh, re-election odds, you know, lots and lots of undecideds because the boundaries had changed, right? So people, the new ward was approximately 40% new to the incumbent. So his name rec was relatively low. His deserved re-election was in the 30s. And so that, and now, now I will say also, right, I'm not in politics, never had been. So my name recognition was in single digits, right? And so what all you can hope for from that poll is to show, all right, is the incumbent vulnerable, right? And, you know, you do some message testing and some ideas around it and see, do you have a path? Is there a way that you can get yourself into your candidacy or campaign into a position to either win or be in a runoff? Uh, the polling data we had at that time indicated it was possible, uh, but complicated, especially because we had, it was, it was not a one-on-one -on -one race. So you can't count on you know, in a one-on-one -on -one race, you're going to be able to count on a certain amount of just dissatisfied, they'll always vote against the incumbent voters. Uh, and then you sort of battle for the middle, right? But when you've got a you've got a race like we did with four individuals in it, 
it, it becomes considerably more challenging, right? To, to figure out what's, what's our path, who are the voters we are appealing to, and how do we, how do we get ourselves into the second place and keep the incumbent below 50%. All right. Now, uh, by the way, we, we had a brief conversation, uh, Andrew and I did before we went on the air about cynicism uh, and uh, which I don't want to go down that road again, although it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, but I will say this. Um, embedded in the notion that name recognition matters uh, is a very cynical contempt for the voters uh, in that if all they need to... <laughs> Oh, Chicago voters, you are pieces of work. Uh, <laughs> Channing Vallis's name. I still can't get that image. Channing his name on uh, the Southwest side. It doesn't get more blatant than that. Sorry. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, uh, because just think about it, uh, Andrew. If you know the name, it's not even positive or negative. I know the name. That, that implies that you're going to vote for him. Which yeah, it's the most cynical contemptuous no not the most because there's worse but it shows a certain contempt for the intelligence of chicago voters all it takes to get their vote is to know the name you may despise the name you may hate their policies but uh, i'm used to a spotter i think i'll vote for him go ahead Andrew. Well, Defend no, the voters. I think, you know the point of the name recognition uh piece <laughs> is that you consistently will have you could have high name recognition and not have people vote for you, right? There are there are candidates, excuse me, there are candidates in our city that have very high name recognition, obviously uh, get you know 14% of the vote in a mayoral uh, election, right? So high name recognition does not necessarily, it, it certainly means, you know, there's name recognition is, is a part of the puzzle, but you also need to make sure that you have enough pe- enough um, identity out there, right? You people, the hope is that if they recognize their name, your name, then they're in a position that when they're asked, do you support this person or not? They're they're educated enough about the candidacy and about the person to to say thumbs up or thumbs down, right? Because the last thing you want is, you know, we we had this going in our last track had 30% of voters still undecided, right? And that's that's a scary proposition. You're walking into election day, you know, two, three weeks later, I don't know how long it was. Yeah. And you're going, well, wait a minute. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. None. Um, wow. But I, I do think one of the things that shocked me knocking doors was just how many people, we have a real problem in our city, a, a real problem. And I think it's in our society more broadly. And it's a problem of alienation, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we are alienated from one another more than we have ever been before. I, I, I live, as, I, as we've said, sort of the north end of Logan Square, and I have a neighbor down on the south part of Logan Square who can, has regularly joked that the weather is nicer because he's further south. Uh, and and hidden in that, it's funny, but hidden in that is a kernel of truth about how we work in our city, where we think really, you know, the, the issues that matter 10 blocks from me are different for those people than the issue that I, the issues that I grapple with. Right. And so there's a, there's a tremendous energy towards provincialism in the way that our governmental systems are set up. Um, you know, the sort of devolution of authority from downtown in some ways, like devolution of authority from downtown to, to local schools, to local parks, to local, and it, this, and then, like I said, the, the, the aldermanic system itself, where people are consistently encouraged, go to your alderman, go to your alderman, and it, we stop. It's it's created a, an environment in the city of Chicago in general where I we don't we don't worry what's happening in another part of the city because that's I, I can't even think about 
Wicker Park, right? I'm busy with my issues in Logan Square. It doesn't matter that Wicker Park is a mile from me, right? That's might as well be another land, right? A, fo a foreign and distant place. Yeah. And so when we, we try to get people in our city to care what's happening halfway across the city, right? If we're going to care about a metal shredder opening in, in the east side, right? That's that's like heresy. Why would anyone why would anyone on the north side care about that? We, going back to statues, we talked about this. When, when they removed the Columbus statues, they just forgot. There was one on the east side. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that one in Indiana? No, it's it's in Chicago. And so I think that problem of alienation exists, you know, broadly in our society, broadly in our city, and also amongst voters. So that I, I remember I was talking to someone and they were convinced, convinced La Spada was toast. And I said, no, no, no. He, he has a 50-50 shot of winning it on election day. I told this to many, many people. And they looked stunned, truly stunned. And they said, do you see any support for him? And I said, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I do. I knock doors. I talk to people. Where do you, he says, well, I've talked to everyone within three blocks. I was like, ah, yes, of course. Of course. Uh, by the way, I'm going to push back a little bit with you about the uh, Columbus statue. And we did a great show. If I, I must say so myself, Andrew and I, uh, Columbus statues, because the dude knows statues, parks, preservation, like no one else in the city of Chicago. We had a, a good time with it. Uh, I will push back with you. You said people forgot there was a Columbus statue uh, on the southeast side. I would push back on the issue of forgetting. I don't know if that's the correct word. Forgetting implies that they ever knew. That's uh, okay. So, <laughs> but they didn't recognize it. Is that way? That's it. Almost doesn't look like the other ones. I would. Uh, most people in Chicago don't even know there's a neighborhood on the southeast side, uh, let alone know that there's a Columbus statue there. Uh, well, there used to be. Uh, yeah, correct. I said corrected. It used to be. Uh, for all we know, they it's been put back, and we don't even know. No, it uh, might have been. The, the mayor is issuing a few ex executive orders on the way out the door. Perhaps. Uh, Perhaps the Columbus statues will go back up under cover of darkness. Uh, the notion of alienation is one uh, that um, I think you really hit something there. Uh, I, I feel strongly about this. Uh, I talk about this all the time. The, I mean, I don't know what the correct word is. I struggle with different words, alienation, apathy, uh, disconnect, what, whatever word you want to ch uh, choose. Um, the, uh, the decision as to who the mayor and who the alder persons will be uh, is determined by approximately 35% of the uh, registered voters in the city of Chicago, which is even a smaller member, smaller percentage of the actual voting age people in the city of Chicago. So we are a city of minority rule. And when I say minority, I don't mean minorities uh, like an ethnic group or a racial group. I'm talking about fewest number of people. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, it again, coming back to cynicism, I, I believe uh, that our elected officials encourage minority rule. I think it works toward incumbents. I think they do what they can uh, not to encourage people to vote. Uh, and uh, I think we suffer as a result. And I think it's further compounded by, I don't know what, how else to call it, the distraction of national politics. Uh, people, begin, the, I always point out that in the presidential election, we had in the 70s percent turnout. In the mayoral election, we had in the 30s percent. Uh, and so uh, clearly people will vote in an election they think is important 
and they think a presidential election is important, but they won't vote in an election they don't think is important, and they don't think uh, who the mayor is is important, much less an older person. Uh, I feel that's a very disturbing trend in the city of Chicago. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think so. It's funny. On election day, I was talking to another volunteer who who had immigrated from Australia. And in Australia, he's describing this culture of voting where it's required, right? You you get a ticket if you don't vote. And initially, as, as an American, of course, the first reaction you have is what? How dare the government tell me I must do anything, right? I must, I, if it's my desire to... To, to not vote, I choose not to vote. That's my right, you know, screw you. But what I what I really enjoyed listening and talking to him, he said, no, it's a, it's a carnival situation. It's wonderful. It's, he says, we, we all cook out. So we have big grills in front of polling places and we make sausage and we feed people on their way into the polls. And I think about the problems we have, which, which are multiplying of shortages of election judges, right? We can't, we can't, I, I can, I've heard this, this complaint for several cycles now that we do not have enough voters, uh, election judges to man the polls. Um, so I think that it's really worth looking at, you know, making, making election day a holiday would be a great thing, but barring that in Australia, they vote on Saturday. I I don't see why there's any reason. I, I heard problems, a few problems. People reached out to me about polling places being in schools because we've lost so many sort of quasi public spaces. Like, uh, so many churches have closed. They used to host polling places. We put them in schools now and parents, um, one set of parents had a, their, their, their school has a cluster program for autism. And they were saying, look, we can't, those, those children need routine and they need regular, you know, they, they can't have hundreds of people walking in their school. It's going to really mess them up. Uh, so I'm looking at this thinking, Hey, why are we having, why aren't we having election day on a Saturday? It's, it's, it would increase turnout without, you know, this would be an incremental change. It would increase turnout without, you know, without, uh, requiring it. And it would also widen the pool of people that are available to work as election judges, right? And if we're starting to starting to encounter these tr- problems on a regular basis, then we need to make voting easier. I think early voting has certainly helped. Uh, we've seen you know greater turnout around early voting and vote by mail, but I, I, I still there's more that can be done, and I think we should do more. I think the greater voting by t- or early voting is just the more people uh, who vote are voting early. Yeah, not that the number of people who vote going up. It's just, and I love the media coverage of it. The early voting is sky, sky high. They get all excited, and then the total, you know, well, duh. Half and half this time it was like half and half, half early, half day of. Yeah, it's, it just means that day of voting falls. Yep. Oh, they never get around to reporting that part of it. Uh, yeah, I uh, no, make it easier uh, would make it easier to defeat incumbents. Yeah, I, I think, well, that's what they always worry about, right? Is that, and I've heard that old saw a long time. Well, if you can't be troubled to, to turn out to vote, you really shouldn't have an opinion or you're not educated. We don't want to make it easy for, for those people to, to, to come out and vote. Whatever, whoever those people are, however they're framed by the speaker, um, perhaps they're chanting someone's name. But, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. but I think finding ways to, to make voting easier, whether that's making election day a holiday, whether that is moving election day to a weekend, um, I think I, I actually more and more I'd like to I'd like to I think we should explore moving it to a weekend because I think it would open up possibilities for people um, more broadly use public facilities that are otherwise in in heavy use on the weekdays. Absolutely. They chanted Paul Vallis' name in the Southwest. They haven't chanted a politician, a local politician's name in the Southwest side since 1983. And they were chanting Apton. I want all of you now to pause and think 
Epton Vallis. Epton's opponent was Harold Washington. Harold Washington, Brandon Johnson. Come on, Chicago. You can figure this out. We're not going to give it away. You're going to put that big old Chicago brain on it and figure it out. Come on. And that's an interesting, uh, before we go to, uh, we should go down the mayoral track too, right? I I have heard a lot of people compare Brandon Johnson, uh, seen a lot of parallels to the Harold Washington uh, campaign. Now, I was not, I was not active in politics at that time. Uh, You, Ben, were covering it for the free press, if I, uh, if I can remember my history. Did you, uh, what did, what, do you see parallels? Oh my God. I go on and on. Uh, it, I see so many parallels. Like I wake up a, every, Oh God, just cry for help. I wake up every morning and on my brain uh, is a parallel to a different Chicago. I, every it's like a different election. I see parallels to 83 uh, primary in which uh, Harold ran against Richie Daly and Jane Byrne. I see parallels to 83 general when Harold ran against uh Bernie Epton. I see parallels to 89 when uh, Daly ran against Sawyer and Evans. I mean, it's just, it's like if you've been around and been obsessed with politics uh, as I am, then you just, it's, it's like the past speaks to you. And then what's really scary is when you start talking back to it, particularly when you're walking down the street, you're just talking to yourself. Uh, so yes, I see a lot of parallels, uh, but back to your story. Yes. Um, so fundraising. I, oh. I, that just fills me with dread, the concept. And I've talked to so many candidates who've told me, Ben, you have no idea how hard it is. It's just to ask people. For, I have a hard time, if I may share this with you, Andrew, but you're using you as my therapist. I have a hard time asking anybody for anything. But to ask somebody for money? Give me money? You know, and some some people are like, they really make you beg before they give you the money. Oh, really? Well. What's your position on this, that, the other? They like, like before they give it, write the check for ten dollars. You know, you know the Uh, weirdest, the weirdest fundraising call I got, or I had, I had was with a guy who I he picks up the phone, and says, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, He's a little down, and he says, you know, my my my, I'm in the hospital. My father's dying. I said, oh God, you know, please get back to that. Right? Don't. I don't know why you're talking. He goes, yeah, it's terrible. He starts to talk about the health. Of, of this parent. And I, and I said, I, I'm, I am sorry to have troubled you at this time. Right. I, I, I feel really bad. Well, what, what did you need? And I said, honestly, like, this is very gauche. I was calling to raise money, right. Go back to your, to your parents' bedside. And he goes, no, no, no. I don't know what I was. I don't know what I was thinking, bringing it up. I need a distraction anyway. Give me your pitch. And I went, uh, okay. And by the end he said, all right, look, I'm going to give you money, but I want you to give me your best uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. from Jerry Maguire <laughs> impression. And I was like, you're kidding me, right? That's kidding. hilarious. He demanded that I scream, you know, show me the money. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he goes, yeah, all right. I got a thousand dollars for you. I was like, wow, that's. Did you do it? Uh, great. Oh, yeah, I did it. I, I did not do it well. Uh, I, I haven't seen Jerry Maguire in, I don't know, 20 years. I like, I think I remember what he's talking about. But we raised <clears throat> it was it was actually stunning when I think about it because the the down payment on my house was about eighty eight thousand dollars. That's what I needed to do. And I had some of that, and then the rest of it was sort of like passing the hat around the family. This is a privilege, of course, that many do not have. But you know, this was the experience. And I remember the sort of the difficulty of putting eighty eight eighty eight thousand dollars together to buy my house, right? And then over the course of the campaign, we raised, 
I raised largely over the phone. We did very little fundraising events. We did, it was mostly just me going through the Rolodex and saying, Oh, Hey, you've got money, right? I need some, you know? <laughs> and I was, we raised, I think around $175,000, right? Which as I was raising it and looking at these totals was, was staggering to me, absolutely staggering. And what was, what was the most disturbing about it? And I told, I told people this, like, this, this is, this is more than twice what I raised you know, what I had and then borrowed from family to buy my house. And I thought, you know what we're going to do with this? Let's, I got a great idea. Let's just make a giant pile of money, like the biggest pile of money I've ever seen in my life. And then it's just like, let's just light it on fire. Right. Why don't we, why don't we do that? Let's just burn it. <laughs> yeah. And it was so, for me, I think what struck me, I, I've, I've spent a lot of years raising money, largely for the community group. Right. I, we've planted, we planted 50 trees last year, right. In our, in our community. And Asking these same people for $500, it was $500 to plant a tree, something around that, right? So I would call and ask for $500 to plant a tree, and you would have thought I was asking them to, like, deprive their children of food, right? That It's either, if they give me this $500, their child is not going to eat this week, right? Those same people, they were like, wait, how much? How much? What's the max? $6,000? Sure, no problem. I'll write you a $6,000 check. And it was it was so much easier to have them write checks for a campaign, a political campaign, than to do things that I thought were more valuable and more durable. Now, look, I appreciated it. I was, I was, it was amazing. The show of support was stunning. I couldn't believe it. But I also remember thinking like, gosh, we really need to rethink the way we are funding these campaigns. If we spent the, the first word race between the four candidates, it was probably, it was north of probably north of $750,000 was spent. And when I think about that in the context of the good we could do in our communities with that kind of money, I, I I don't know how we as a city and as a society can say, because the other option, of course, is to just, if we're going to do it that way, it hands an enormous advantage to people who have a Rolodex that doesn't include, forgive me, people of modest means, like I I know, but people of, of, of titanic means, right? Like the Griffins of, yeah. of the city. No, it, um, it, it's absurd the way we finance campaigns. It's an absurd waste of money. I agree with you 100%, $750,000, which is, a rel I mean, there are races that cost more than that. So in the, that's not even one of the higher uh, expenditures of race. But it, to me, just like, it's it's just like all the needs we have in the city of Chicago, $750,000 uh, to determine who would be the alderman or the older person of the, of the, uh, of the first war just seems like a waste of money. All right, let's get into the dynamics of the first ward race, uh, because in, in many ways it's emblematic of where we are uh, in the citywide race. And I guess you can make the uh, an analogy for the country as a whole. Uh, so the incumbent, as I said, is Daniel Espada, uh, and he is a, a lefty. Uh, and um, the number one challenger from the right was uh, Sammy Royko, son of Mike Royko. Again, millennials, Z's, don't worry. You don't know who the name is. It doesn't matter. But every baby boomer knows he was a great columnist, perhaps the greatest political column, perhaps the greatest columnist, period, in the history of the city of Chicago. Uh, and then Proco Joe Moreno, the former alderman, uh, who so uh, uh, also Roy, famous, but for a wholly different a wholly different thing. Uh, yes. Uh, and I'm not going to read. Yeah, I'm not just ignore Proko's past for the moment. Um, Proko and um, uh, Royko were running tough on law and order campaigns, uh, and they were trying to, um, uh, 
I don't know. They're joining one hundred and one of uh, running from the right uh, scare people into voting against a lefty, uh, and you were sort of like in the middle of that. And I guess I could see your path to victory. Uh, all the right wingers would be voting for uh, Moreno and Royko, uh, and the lefties would be voting uh, for for uh, La Spada. That would be bring you the middle. That would get you to a runoff. Was that sort of like the general conclusion that you had as to your path to victory? So our path, the way we perceived our path to victory was that through the ward, we we understood, and I've known from our organizing, both political and and but for our nonprofit that we've done separately, right? These are, these are, there's a wall between these, right? They, I stepped away from the nonprofit for the race. So what I understood was that the ward was phenomenally progressive, right? I know that from all our work. I know that from the positions I've supported and the way they've been greeted. And so that was the race we were going to run. And that, you know, the central part of progressivism to my mind and to my experience is, is building that grassroots connection, that deep, you know, an abiding connection to the grassroots because you can't, you cannot be a progressive candidate without it. You cannot win a progressive race without it. Um, but that with the ward having it truly, it was 66%, maybe as much as somewhere between 60 and 70% would identify themselves as liberal, progressive, you know, whatever that might be. With the balance being conservative and moderate. Mm -hmm. So our our perception of this was there was no way that that a that a conservative or a moderate would win such a race. But and and this was the this was the danger inherent in the race was that the presence of conservative and moderate candidates would actually push voters uh, into the acknowledged progressive and that would be the incumbent right and so people might say hey you know yeah we like Schneider we like the things he stands for we really like it. but but the, but our like our campaign the difference between what we were offering and what Daniel Espada is offering was was this track record and commitment of engagement of people on the grassroots right making sure that people were co-governance is the word, right? That we had a track record of fighting for it and working for it. Uh, and we felt that that distinguished us from Daniel Laspada, right? Uh, but it becomes very, it's a very nuanced argument. And it's hard to make that argument in the pre in the presence of so many mailers coming in talking about crime, so many mailers coming in uh, talking about this person being a victim or that person being a victim and you should be afraid, right? Because that, that caused people who might have been open to a more nuanced argument around what it is to be a progressive leader in the city to instead go, you know what? Yeah, sure. Is Daniel a perfect candidate? No, but no candidate is right. No, no one perfectly represents your point of view, except you. So let's just, let's just stick with this, with a safe bet here. He's got a track record. We know who he is. Let's stick with him because we cannot let, and I heard this from a lot of people. They were afraid of a Royco aldermanic administration. They were afraid of a Moreno. And I will say this, it was actually, the, the number of people that said they were afraid of Royco, right? This was largely around the the pro-police rhetoric, right? That's that's what we heard. There was so much of it in the race that they didn't like Royco, not because they didn't like his father, not because they didn't like necessarily him as a person, but they were afraid that he was going to be too too much on the police. Um, but that the actual one of the actual problems was Moreno, because no matter even though you, you know we saw the vote totals how he did, Moreno was kind of a boogeyman for La Spada. He was able to. The, the incumbent Daniel was able to put out, hey, this Moreno is a problem. We can't let him back in. And that was a consistent thing we heard was people saying that there could not be a path for Moreno, right? Uh, and so it really it really cut off. It, it then put us in the position of having to explain, well, let, let's talk about 
we have a runoff system in the city of Chicago, yeah. right? And so you get two bites of this apple. If by some miracle yeah. we end up with with that, uh, you can then you can vote uh, for Daniel. But why don't why don't we you know let's let's boost another progressive into the race so that we can have a conversation about about what our differences are, right? Um, and so that's where that was our path, and it was complicated. But I one of the things that I learned, and, and you and I talked about this briefly on the phone. Uh, there's certainly more than one way to win, right? And winning the races is one, but with 20% of the vote, which we're nearly 20% of the vote in four-way race with an incumbent, it was a very strong showing. It's I, I, the number of phone calls I've gotten around that is, is incredibly encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think one of the, one of the things that I, I, I learned through this uh, is that it's not because I have truly engaged a lot of volunteers over the years, both as just a regular grassroots organizer and then also as a candidate. And, and I compared it to running running for office is not for everybody. But if you're running for office from a place of principle and commitment and it's it's an organic outgrowth of the other work that you have done, then it can be an incredible experience whether you win or not. And and for me, it was it was so it was emotional for, for weeks. I would, I would discuss it with people and try and explain it. And I would, I would, I would start to start to tear up, start to cry because you would hear people. I remember I, I was at a, a meet and greet and some folks that I had known for about a year started talking about what, what they thought of me, right? They had hosted this meet and greet for their neighbors. And then they start talking about how they'd been watching my work for a decade, didn't know me as a person. And when they met me, you know, and, and, and what my work in the community had meant to them, uh, what my friendship over the last year had meant to them. And so when you start hearing those stories again and again and again, the, the, the closest analog I could think, it's like watching your own funeral, right? Watching one person after another that you've known for a year or 20 years stand up and say things about you that, that honestly you don't know that you deserve. How could, I have, how could I have earned these words? How could I have earned this commitment from these people? Who, who, you know, what, what, what kind of horse do they have in this, right? What kind of dog do they have in this fight? They're, they're standing up and putting their name behind mine because they really believed uh, and they, they saw the work that I had done. And, and that was so, it was so humbling. It was, I struggle not to tear up even now. It was such an amazing experience. Um, I'm thinking now about the election that went down two candidates running on fear, two candidates running on cracking down on crime. Only 65% of the, uh, excuse me, only 35% of the vote, turnout am i correct first ward was roughly 35 percent as well as matched the city okay yes so what's your thoughts on what that says about fear of crime as a motivating factor to get people to vote i'll repeat sam Reiko and proco joe moreno ran law and order campaigns uh, largely based on scaring people into voting for them uh with uh, reports of crime on the rise they neither one was victorious. Uh, neither one was for, uh, capable of forcing a, a La Spada into a runoff. Uh, and only 35% of the registered voters in the first ward voted. So what how, what's what's that say to you about how fear of crime uh, works as an agent to get people to vote? So I heard I think there's I think there's there's two things to consider about crime or public safety as an issue. And the first is that everyone, there wasn't a single voter I spoke to that didn't take it seriously, right? Nobody, nobody that I talked to said, you know, we live in, we live in, you know, uh, what is it? The 
the Hard Rock Candy Mountain or whatever. Like nobody thought we're living in the land of milk and honey in that regard. But they were profoundly varied in terms of how they felt it should be dealt with. I had three of my friends have been carjacked in in Logan Square in the last two years. And uh, every one of those people supported my candidacy. And if they couldn't have me, they would vote for La Spada. And that, to me, it, it speaks to this real deep divide in the way people perceive the underlying problem and 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 the solution. I, I told folks, we had, when you try and solve for public safety, the first ward's boundaries are imaginary. There, there are boundaries that we just agree to, to respect. And there's nobody that's going to, you know, somebody's made a decision they're going to carjack or rob someone. They don't stroll across Western and suddenly go, oh, well, we're now in, uh, we're in the first ward <laughs> now. This, this is, this is territory. We got to get out of here, right? Somebody's going to, they're going to get us here. Let's go over to this other ward. They're, they're weaker. No, it, it, when, when I was a reporter in the suburbs, the, the way that they handled crime often, right? And I would hear this from the police is that they would, they would harass somebody, largely a minority, largely somebody in a car that was, you know, a little older model car. And they would just harass them, get them out of town. That was, that was the way they built up a wall. And they would pick up people for what we call quality of life issues, right? Panhandling is one of the words, right? And they would take these people, put them in their squad car, drive them five miles into the city of Chicago and boot them out the door and say, that's great. This We won't have this problem for several days now, right? And there was something, I think, when we talk about solving for public safety in the city of Chicago, looking at it on a ward by ward basis is, is it's not going to work that way. You can't, you cannot solve for public safety. You cannot make one ward safe if you cannot make the city safe. That's so I think that when it comes to public safety as a as a as an aldermanic issue, there are those two currents that run a counter to it as an issue that people are going to vote around. The first being people understand that the power, like that that the ward boundaries are imaginary and the area as a whole has to be safe. The city has to be safe, right? And so are they going to vote for an alderman based on on that? I don't think so. And the same problem exists with regards to the chain of command. Nobody thinks that the alderman is ordering the police patrols around, right? In fact, they know that they aren't. So they, there's there's that countercurrent there too, where people would say you'd you'd push people that were a little more around public safety, right? Or they, that was their top issue. It, initially, they would they would express a little little frustration with my candidacy or with or with La Spada's administration, and then I would ask, well, what what do you, what do you think? could be done truthfully honestly and when you allow them that opening they would admit that well yeah there's very little that the alderman can do uh, around these things that maybe the alderman can fund some some add some menu money for for infrastructure maybe some additional lights maybe some additional cameras you know that that might have an impact but they were it, it's it's an interesting there's an interesting tension there that i think made public safety a bigger issue in the mayoral race Right. Something that a lot more people were going to make their vote on in, in that regard, because they understood the chain of command, which, by the way, given the new district councils, isn't quite so clear any longer. But I think that I think that as as an issue, it did not move people. Right. That the people that were going to vote. The way that they did, the people were always going to vote the way that they did. They were not going to vote. They weren't going to be moved from voting for Daniel Espada or myself to a, a, uh, another candidate on public safety alone. They weren't even going to be moved to vote or uh, moved. Yeah, to yeah. Vote. I mean, that's my point. Or so, even moved to vote. Yeah, moved to vote. 
Uh, but you know what, then? Yeah, what's interesting on. about that, right? So we, we talk about an idea of, they, they use this term. I became familiar with many, many terms. And they use a term called the voter universe. Have you heard this before? The no, voter universe. Go ahead. This is good. Go. So what you do, right, is you you start going, all right, who are my likely voters? And you you pull the data files, right? The central data. There's a, you know, there's wizards that handle this, right? I, I can only picture them as wizards. So they pull this data and then they, they crunch it against well, when did they vote? Did they vote in the last municipal, one of the last couple municipals, the primary, the most recent primary, right? And then the, from that, they put together a list of likely voters. These people will probably vote, okay. right? And so our likely voter universe, the okay. size of it was about 14,000. So okay. even though there's 50,000 people and maybe 30,000 voters, you know, 35,000 voters, the people that were getting our message was only a fraction of that because we were looking at their history to decide who to communicate with. Yeah. And it's not just that's that is that is the practice, right? That's how it works, which is why potentially, you know, hey, if we if we had the power to blanket the whole board with mail, perhaps, right? Yeah. Perhaps you'd see increases in turnout. If we had public financing of campaigns, right? We part of that might be conditioned on you can't narrow your, you know, and you do it to save money, right? It costs if you look at a, a mailer, eight, nine, ten, twelve thousand dollars. So if you want to double that. Now you're talking about a campaign that cost 170000 costing $350,000. Yeah. So perhaps that's one of the central things that could be dealt with. And that might also build and increase voter engagement if voters were communicated with in a way that was more uh, more substantial and more commu- more regular. Yeah. I don't know. I have to think about this. Uh, I... I have many theories, uh, which we, we don't need to go down this road, why voter turnout is so low uh, in the city of Chicago. You talked, you began by talking about alienation, uh, and it is so clear, it's so obvious to me, the overwhelming majority of people in the city of Chicago uh, feel in their heart of hearts that government is worthless and useless. And, uh, uh, and I give a shout out here to Michael Girardi, a longtime listener, uh, great guitar, rock and roller, and singer-songwriter comes on the show, and he uh, he he's the one who put this in my brain that most people, uh, or many people in the city of Chicago, just think government is worthless. It's useless. It doesn't work for them. It works for somebody else. You could I could spend my entire days explaining how government works for absolutely everyone. The streets you drive on, the police who patrol on, the firefighters who put your fires out, the the park district that you go, and they just it it. It's just embedded in their brain uh, that government doesn't work for them. Uh, and uh, so what's the point? And so, you know, it's that what you just said about the political universe shows that the pros, uh, the people who get paid to run campaigns and to figure out how to get Andrew Schneider to be victorious in exchange for Andrew having to pay them money uh, as consultants, this is what they do for a living, uh, will say to Andrew, do not waste your time on the 26,000 people who aren't going to vote. Don't even waste a nickel on them. It's just a waste of money. You might as well. It's it's equivalent. It's the equivalent of Lincoln Yards. You're digging up a big hole and you're just throwing money in it. It's not going to help really anybody. Right? Doesn't go. It's, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to grow anything. It's it's not going to help the poor struggling shop owners on Clybard who can't rent their buildings while you spend one point three billion dollars. Sorry, folks. Like just. This is uh, why yeah. people don't vote. They see colossal waste of money like Lincoln Yards. It's one of the reasons, in my humble opinion, 
They colossal wastes of money. And they know this system is rigged. Donald Trump was correct. The system is rigged. It happens to be rigged for Donald Trump, but it is rigged. Most people know that they're not going to bother to vote. And so the pros tell Andrew Schneider, look, kid, here's what you got to do. F the 26,000. They're morons. No one cares about them. They're never never coming out to vote. They don't even know there's an election. Right. That's you right. know what? I'm going to just tell you, I'm not going to name names because I love this person dearly who told me this story. He told me he voted for Willie Wilson in the first round because uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing. It's so funny. He said he looked at the website and read the policies and and uh, and decided Willie what represented him the best. And I'm like, dude, that's the kind of like civics answer that you give when you know you did something really stupid and you want to justify it. I do not in a million years believe you you went to any website. I certainly don't believe if you did go to Willie Wilson's website, which I don't believe, but let's say you did. I don't believe you did a comparison shop with Paul Vallis's website. Oh, let me go see what Jesus Garcia's opinion on this is. Don't believe he said it. You just said it because you thought it was the right thing to say. You admit that it was a dumb vote. You voted for a Republican. You didn't know. You did it because your friend told you to do it. You know, Willie Wilson is an interesting, he's an interesting guy. I uh, I understand. It's it's. I've talked to a lot of people who often, they'll ask about him. They'll talk about him. And I think there's a certain, I don't, I don't know what to think of, of him between the gas giveaways for, you know, there was, he brought at the early in the pandemic, he donated an enormous number of masks to the city, right? Yes. Uh, st- surgical masks. And they, they're all reporting, ah, Dr. Willie Wilson is giving surgical masks to whatever. And I, I hadn't taken him seriously enough up to that moment because I thought broadly, you know, this is a person that's almost on the Roman Republican scale of, of how to, what we do is we throw circuses and we have great feasts and I give away gasoline. That's the way I get votes. You know, that's almost on that level of politics. And so we're, we're talking about 2000 years behind the times, right? And so I didn't take him very seriously, but then I thought, well, I should look at this, Dr. Willie Wilson. I remember the very next thing I learned was that he had an honorary doctorate and it was in divinity, right? And I went, oh, this is, all right, okay. You know, well, and that was that was the last, last so little bit Willie, of you know, Willie. So Willie Wilson's vote proves everything I just said, the Michael Girardi theory. And the, again, the Michael Girardi theory is that people, like pe- most people view government as worthless. It does nothing for them. Even if it does something for them, you're never, you're never going to convince them that it does anything for them. The Willie Wilson vote, to a large degree, uh, or to some degree, was based on the fact that he literally did something for people. He gave them gasoline. He did something for people. Nobody else can say in their race they did something for people. Years ago, before your time, there's a guy ran for lieutenant governor named Scott Lee Cohen. I'm the only one who remembers this. I apologize to my young listeners for knowing this. He his family was uh, got fabulously wealthy running pawn shops, not making this up, Andrew Schneider. And he was victorious, a large degree because he promised to give people jobs. He funded commercials and said, I'm going to give you I will give you jobs. And he he won. And then it was an embarrassment. He had to step down. Uh, uh, But anyway, he got caught in scales. That's not the point. The point is, if you literally give somebody something. That's more in people's minds than what government does. Yeah, government. I think most people subscribe to that notion that somebody told you that government takes from me and gives to somebody else. 
And uh, I think, yeah. And I think what's, what's particularly interesting about that, because I've heard a lot of that, right. And I'm not, you know, I take the, the, our city has problems, right. There are a lot of things we got to contend with. And I think you talk about Lincoln Yards and $1.3 billion and you start to understand why people don't take the, the, the dire warnings about the city's financial condition very seriously, right? When the city can, on the one hand, say, ah, yes, we're, CTA is about to, about to go bankrupt and the city's pension funds are horribly underfunded and blah, 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 blah. And also these incredibly wealthy people who just bought a bunch of buildings and land and tore it all down, they, they, they need a $1.3 billion subsidy. We're just, we're just going to give it to them, right, guys? Because we, we've got to give it to them. It's, it makes it really hard for people to take seriously the broader problems that we have. And I think, you know, it's funny, I was talking to people, the amount of people who have discussed heading for the exits in Chicago, right? And, and don't, that their their idea behind heading for the ad- exits is is it seems to be internally inconsistent. So on the one hand, Chicago is a, is circling the toilet, right? It's the next Detroit. That's one of my favorites. It's the next Detroit. It's run by all of these horrible individuals, right? Like like the the the, the horrible Brandon Johnson, right? What'll happen if if he gets the reins? Well, this voter told me the minute that happens, you know, Chicago's toast, and I'm leaving. I'm going to sell my house. And I said, Oh, really? He goes, Oh yeah, you know, I'm going to make. I'm going to make a pretty penny on it. You know, I'm going to make a lot of money on the house. And I remember kind of looking at him going like, man, if you're about to, on the one hand, you're like, Chicago is circling the toilet. And on the other, buyers are going to, are going to, they're going to surge in and buy my house. For You know, I'm going to make, a, I'm going to make a, a hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> what part of the economics, just the reality on the ground of that situation causes you? I mean, this is a relatively intelligent person I gathered, right? From, from the discourse we were engaged in. And he can't he can't seem to put two and two together in this case that the city if the city's circling the, tr- the drain then people with a lot of money willing to pay seven figures for your house you must think those people are stupid you must think those people are out of their minds yeah i don't know how intel i don't know the person you're ter- alluding to i don't know about intelligence but uh he is clearly illogical uh <laughs> and i love that story you tell uh and it uh it just sort of sums it all up. <laughs> well, it does. It's it's yeah. strange, and it's but that it, like you said, it deals with at the core this idea of alienation, right? That just people seem to they're 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 sitting in their their sort of pod of opinions, right? And there's just or pot, you know, it's just stewing there for four years at a time. You know, my alderman is terrible or great, right? My the the mayor is terrible or great, and then after you know the election rolls around and the amount of certainty, and I, I say this certainty on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, people that are sure this politician's career is over or that is changing. And they're just, they're just floored when they're not, it's not like it's close, you know, they're, they're floored when, you know, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez defeats two opponents handily. You know, she just runs up a really good margin Um, that when Carlos Rosa, it manages to essentially get his only opponent isn't able to make the ballot and they just cannot believe how is this possible? What's happened to our city? And they, the ultimate sort of like train of logic that they're on the final stop on that line is well everyone else here is stupid so i'm selling my house and leaving right <laughs> it's only a matter of time before yeah. the collapses under the weight of the stupidity of its residents you know that, that i find that a very tempting conclusion to reach about chicago voters for different reasons i just saying <laughs> i kind of find myself kind of nodding along with that person for different so you're reasons on a, you're on a different train line but ending yeah. at the same station is that yes again? yes very well put yes <laughs> uh all right we're going to close with a prediction all guests must make a prediction whether they want to or not uh i love watching them squirm duck and dodge and avoid and 
the question. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, hey, one of the great joys of uh, having a political podcast. So uh, the date as we speak is March 14th, 14th, 14th. Uh, the election is April 4th. Uh, and uh, who, in your humble opinion, will be victorious in the runoff? Paul, they cheer for him on the southwest side of Vallis or Brandon Johnson? I believe Brandon Johnson's going to win. I think that uh, I will tell you, this has been the interesting part of a lot of this. And I think there there were people that have been circling around me for a while talking about who, you know, who are you going to endorse here? Who are you going to endorse there? And it, what's been interesting about this is being running for office, being an elected official is about building a coalition, no matter no matter what. And it's about bringing people together, either as volunteer volunteers, volunteer leaders, donors that don't share the same politics on everything. And so we had a, a fair amount of both volunteers and supporter and supporters and leaders who were initially supportive of, you know, Brandon Johnson or Chewy Garcia or others, right? Um, Paul Vallis as well. And so I know friends and neighbors who are very supportive of Vallis and I respect their opinions around that. Um, personally, I I know from talking to our leaders that the broads, the broad strokes, like the people that are supportive up here, are the people of my campaign and the people that I will support as well, they're with Brandon Johnson, right? And I think that the first ward is heavily, heavily going to go for Brandon Johnson, along with a large chunk of our of our area, 130, 35, 33, 26. We're going to see a lot of votes up here for Brandon Johnson. And that's why I support Brandon Johnson as well. But and because my leaders, among other things, like this is a this is all got to be a coherent, consistent, like we're working together. What do people want to do? Right. And they they named a lot of names and one of those names amongst the area. Right. And one of those names is Brandon. All right, so I believe that that's where he's going. I believe he's going to make it. All, the way. all right. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, Rodden, don't walk to Vegas. Put your money down. Andrew Schneider says Brandon Johnson will be victorious. Uh, he not only said he supports him. See, that's the. That's like the distinction. Some people will tell you who they support. I go, I didn't ask who you supported. I asked who you thought was going to win. Why do you answer a different question than the one I asked? Yeah. Uh, that's called a duck and a dodge, Ben. It's an artful, nuanced version of it. But you well, answered the question. Hey, I wasn't ducking or dodging. Oh, I, was, yeah. uh, I was taking issue with your, he's going to duck and dodge and then answer the question. I'll answer yeah. the question, Ben. Yeah, no, you did answer the question. Uh, and uh, so, folks, run, don't walk to Vegas. Put your money down. Andrew Schneider knows a thing or two about politics, having survived, like, what's with Two months of running for Alderman in the first ward. Oh, hell, two months? Are you kidding me? I've been running since August or September. It's been oh, six months, goodness. seven months. It's been a, I've been running a long race, long race. Uh, Not as long as the presidential race. Yeah, America. I was going to say, the presidential race. Yikes. Uh, although... It one thing that uh, is encouraging, I want to say, I don't know about the utter uh, chaos and dysfunction of national politics. Which, folks, we will get back to national politics. <laughs> Trust me, okay. Uh, but one thing that is encouraging is that it seems like uh, the presidential campaign is a little shorter. You know, it just I there's only the uh, pandemic had something to do with it. Well, I mean, this go around, I'm talking about 2024, like there's, there's really not, it's sort of a, a subterranean president. Well, uh, there's a Democrat and incumbent. So obviously there's no action on the Democratic side, although there are some Dems who say, Joe, don't run. It's not like they're advancing anybody. And people like J.B. Pritzker are waiting around to see if he doesn't run. Uh, but uh, and the re on the Republican side, uh, Trump announced, and then it's like he hasn't announced because he's got so many legal problems. It's a joke that he's announced. Uh, Nikki Haley announced 
DeSantis has not announced yet. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, but he's running a camp, clearly running a campaign. It's not an out and out open campaign. And I believe by this time, uh, let me see if I'm correct. Yes. At this time, follow me on this, Andrew Schneider. Uh, in 2000, uh, Barack Obama was already actively running for president. Yes. Two, before the 2008 campaign, he announced, I want to say, in Lincoln's birthday uh, in uh, 2007. So that was like we're roughly where we are now in the political cycle. So it just seems like it's a shorter season. Anyway, Andrew, uh, it's a blast talking to you, uh, and uh, we'll bring you back. We'll do preservation issues because, folks, this dude knows preservation, okay? Uh, and I hope there's somebody in the city council who speaks to preservation issues. I know it's – I would guess if crime's at the top of the list, preservation's not even the 10 on the list, but – I don't, know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think that you see a lot of I, I'm going to if you'll allow me a shameless plug for the importance of it. Right. I think you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of our neighborhoods that have seen the most sort of substantial disinvestment. Right. The the leading edge of disinvestment is demolition always. And so the city and others come in, they demolish and it's clearance for whatever they want to call it, urban renewal. Uh, the problem is the renewal never comes because those buildings represent an enormous investment um, and it takes a long time for that investment to replicate. A long time, if ever. And what we're seeing in so many neighborhoods in our city is that, you know, if without absent preservation, when the city is given a free hand to demolish, that often that's the end of the the end of the community or, you know, it's a it's a substantial hindrance, substantial. I sit corrected. Well put. Uh, Andrew Schneider is his name. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Appreciate you coming on the show. Ben, always a pleasure. And oh, also- can I say one other thing about the campaign, which was a crazy thing? Yeah. Crazy. So. Uh, my name is Stephen Andrew Schneider. Yeah, I knew. <laughs> uh, my great my great grandfather came to this country from Hungary, right? Yeah. And the patron saint of Hungary is Istvan Stephen in Hungarian, right? And so Stephen <laughs> has been a family name for a very long time. And when when I went into kindergarten, my my mother, of course, she'll tell you, she always wanted to call me Andy, and so she did. Uh, so when I arrived in kindergarten, it was the teacher who first told me that my name was Stephen. And so for my entire life, I it, walked into, you know, elementary school, high school, college classes and had to correct teachers in some cases, very frustratingly, that my name is actually, they, yes, that Stephen, that's my name, but you can call me Andrew, you can call me Andy. Uh, and and the, the hardest part about it is the certainty. So many people online are so certain of things that they were all sure that I had, one person said it was stolen valor. They, their name was Andy and I had, you know, I had I had appropriated this name and I, I somebody even said they're like is his middle name Andrew and somebody's like no I'm like wow that's a really bold I could show you my driver's license or my birth certificate <laughs> if you want like but you know there there was a lot of identity crisis then people going well this is the first time I've heard your name is Steven like well the the ballot access laws I got to put my legal first name on there guys I, I don't know what to tell you yeah no, it's hilarious. I saw the Steve and go, what? Say what is that guy's name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a thing. It's a thing. So all right, but I I've already forgotten uh I that your first name is Steven. It'll always be Andrew or Andy to me. So uh, I, I Ben and and you'll always be Ben to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. But and, and like 90% of my friends call me Benny. All right. Anyway. Benny. Better, uh, better. Uh, so, uh, anyway, thank you very much. I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as always. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love everybody.
And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. And find more from The Ben Jarofsky Show all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. wondered how to say good morning in Italian or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.